Can referees be solely responsible for the outcome of any given game? We'll get into this and a lot more this week on Iceman and Coach. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another installment of Iceman and Coach. I am the Iceman, Matt Freights. That is the coach, Brad Powell. We got a lot to get into this week. But first of all, welcome to the show, my man. Good to see that face, brother. Every single week brings a smile to my face. Iceman, glad to be here. It is definitely one of the best parts of my week, for sure, getting to get getting to get together with you and do this show. We're coming off championship weekend. I have a couple weeks here leading up to the Super Bowl. We have college basketball getting into the month of February and uh, down to crunch time to use a line from our show, getting ready for March Madness, which is right around the corner. And to put the icing on the cake, we talked about cabin fever last week. It's a robust seven degrees here in central Illinois, and it looks like it's going to be pretty cold the next few days. So watch out for my cabin fever meter. It might be uh, going off the charts. Did you say seven as in a single digit seven? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's par for the course here in February, my man. We're just lucky it's not windy. You know, it's not the cold. It's the wind that'll get you. This is why I live where I live in a relatively temperate climate. It was almost 60 degrees today here in Alexandria, Virginia. I had a very light coat on. It was actually a very, very lovely day. I could not do that. So confession, I actually had to make a phone call today for my day job. Believe it or not, this is not our day jobs. And I had to call somebody who lived in the state of Montana, a state that I want to go to one day. It was negative 11 degrees. I may have to rethink the time of year that I go to this wonderful, beautiful state because there is no way, if I'm not going to an NFL playoff game in that kind of weather, I'm not vacationing there in that weather. Well, based off of last week, it doesn't sound like you're going to an NFL playoff game in that weather either. You said that someone would have to pay you a lot of money uh, to get you to go do that. But on the other hand, talking about Montana's weather, it makes me think about the show Yellowstone, right? That's really popular. And I find it interesting that kind of the narrative in the show is to keep Montana from becoming commercialized and touristy. But the irony is the result of that show, I think, is going to lead to Montana becoming commercialized and touristy, right? I have wanted to go to Montana for years. My wife and I have always thought about getting a cabin out there, spending a week out there. Just one of the few places in this country that you can still go to sort of be off the grid and see the Purple Mountains majesty that they talk about in America the Beautiful, which is one of my favorite patriotic songs. And I've never seen an episode of Yellowstone. Generally, shows that come out or are related to CBS, I find, are for old people. But I may have to lighten my stance on this because I think I'm just so used to old people in my life watching strictly CBS shows. It's a good show. I, I was a late adapter. You know, I didn't get to it uh, when it all started. But once I caught up, uh, I, I'm really into it. It's interesting. It's a lot. It's definitely not like kid friendly. You'll have to wait until after the little man goes to bed because, I mean, there's some pretty serious stuff in it. But overall, it's interesting. It's got some good actors and great storylines and drama, which keeps you engaged the whole time. But you're right. Montana is definitely one of those uh, states that's still relatively untouched, kind of raw. You can feel like you're almost going back in time. There's very few places that you can do that, and especially where we live here. And I would assume even in Peoria, where it just the, the places around this country continue to get more and more robust. 
where even the places that are the last vestiges of privacy and sort of being disconnected from this fast paced world, more and more people seem to flock to them, which then make them on the grid and less private. So we'll see what happens with Montana. And maybe again, I will soften my stance. Maybe the ice will melt to use a cliche for the Iceman and I will check out Yellowstone. But I wanna start not in football because the last two weeks we have talked strictly football and obviously the main storylines in sports have been in football. So it's obvious that we would talk about it. But Billy Packer, who was a college basketball announcer for many, many years, passed away last week. And really, there's very few announcers that you can think of that are 100% associated with a particular event. Billy Packer was synonymous with the Final Four for many, many years, very similar to a guy like John Madden with the Super Bowl or Thanksgiving football. And you could name tons of people, Vince Scully for baseball. I wanted to bring this up, not necessarily to pay our respects to Billy Packer because Billy Packer was not quite the most friendly person in the world as a broadcaster, but we're in a time now where I think the broadcasters of old and the way we used to do broadcasting is completely different. But the last time I saw him on television was in an incident that you talked about offline that I want you to kind of speak to because it actually personally hits you. Obviously, he wasn't speaking to you, but speaking to a program that you love and the Bradley Braves. So I wanted you to tell the listeners this story before we get into the larger picture of announcing broadcasting and kind of where Billy Packer fits into that. Yeah, so it was the 2006 NCAA tournament. Uh, the Bradley Braves had a pretty solid year, some good non-conference wins, building up quite the resume. They fell short in the Missouri Valley Conference Championship game to a great Southern Illinois team that was kind of on a roll in the early 2000s, put together several conference championships, won a few games in the NCAA tournament, and had several pros that played for uh, those teams. So Bradley gets an at-large bid to the NCAA tournament. And I believe the conference as a whole got maybe three total bids, like the automatic bid, maybe two at-larges, which is sort of unprecedented, or at least at the time was unprecedented for a mid-major conference. And when this happened, Billy Packer, like specifically, I mean, he went after all mid-majors, but specifically Bradley, he singled them out and he was just astonished, appalled, and almost offended that they were being included in this tournament because they had no business being there. And then over the next two weeks, Bradley went on to uh, beat Kansas and beat Pitt and ultimately be eliminated in the Sweet 16 uh, to Memphis. But I think they showed that they belonged there. And one thing I'll say is basketball, college basketball, seems uniquely fit for a mid-major team to be successful because teams are made up of smaller numbers than you would see in a football team. Uh, and baseball plays, you know, their championships series happen over several games. So it, it, one team can't come out and have one hot game and win the series. You know, they're going to have a three-game series most of the time to decide anything that's really relevant. And on the football side, the physical strength and speed aspect is extremely important. Now, yes, you see upsets, but they are fewer and farther in between. So where college basketball, one hot shooting night, one cold shooting night, uh, one injury can can take a lesser talented team and put them right there with one of the top teams in the country. And, and we've seen it time and time again, more so it feels like recently in the NCAA tournament 
where you have these perceived underdogs winning. And I don't know why you wouldn't necessarily embrace that if you do love college basketball, because Duke would be a mid-major if it weren't for Coach K and what he did. I mean, they fit the mid-major profile in almost every other way, other than the fact that they're in the ACC. Gonzaga was a mid-major. They're they're still in a mid-major conference, and they're viewed as a high-major program because of the success they've had. But it just seems so interesting that there is this sort of elitist mindset specifically when it comes to college basketball in the NCAA tournament. Well, it's funny because when you put Billy Packer and this rant into perspective and you think about it in terms of today, we've talked before about how difficult it is to age on television. And we kind of gave Lee Corso a pass and showed him some grace because he's old, he's had a stroke. And Lee Corso has been able to age so gracefully because he's got that personality that everybody loves, right? He's the kind of guy that you feel just has fun, loves the sport. And I think what was Billy Packer's undoing was this moment, and that was his last Final Four that he called. I think it was recognized that he didn't love the sport. And even years later, he talked about how he wasn't really even a sports fan. He did not watch a college basketball game after he left broadcasting. And it's so fascinating because his approach to broadcasting and announcing was he wanted to educate the listeners. But it wasn't in an educated way, the way that we see Tony Romo, Greg Olson doing that today. It was very much, you either should know this, and if you don't know this, you're stupid. And I think that what's interesting is that even today, we talk about the playoff and expanding the the football college playoff to having more teams in there because more teams means more dollars and more entertainment. And that's really what you're talking about. Yes, did you expect the Bradley Braves to win the national championship? No, but when they go in there and beat two prominent programs and show that they belong, that in by those, by the definition of a mid-major, that's really what you're looking for. And they did that. And everybody was entertained by it. They're the great stories. St. Francis was one of the greatest stories last year, the way that they made that run. UMBC, the way that they were the only 16 seed to beat a number one seed. And if those teams don't get in there, we don't get those stories. And to me, it's not nearly as fun when you have all teams you've heard of. And I think that it's interesting because announcing has changed so much. What the audience wants has changed so much. Billy Packer would never survive today because of the way that he went about his business. But for 30-something years, that was basically the standard of broadcasting. And it's just funny how it hits you personally because he 100% attacked your Bradley Braves. Man, you're not going to stand for that. No, absolutely not. And, I mean, of course, history is on my side, or hindsight, I should say, is on my side because of what Bradley was able to accomplish in that tournament. But I also feel like I also feel like you have in the NCAA tournament, the best of both worlds per se, where everyone can be satisfied because early on in the tournament, you get the Cinderella's, you get the upsets. And those are the things that really draw in, I think, the casual fan and excite the imagination of sports fans or even casual sports fans everywhere. And then a couple weeks later at the end, you usually end up with the four best teams in the final four, or at least three or three of the four best teams. The cream rises to the top. So you get to see your heavyweight showdown when it really matters at the end. So I think everyone could just look at the tournament as it exists and say, hey, we're going to get a little bit of everything. And that's what makes it so great. But it's funny because at the top, I talked about the fact that he was associated with the final four. I mean, 34 final fours is pretty incredible. His first was John Wooden's last game at UCLA. Obviously, that was a long time ago, called many, many games with Jim Nance. And Jim Nance, to me, is one of the guys that's still around that has been calling games. I mean, Jim Nance strikes me as the consummate professional, right? He is 100% professional all the time, and he knows exactly what he's doing. 
But if you think about broadcasting today, I would probably venture a guess, and maybe you're different than I am, but I don't tune in for a specific broadcasting crew, but I will not tune in if it's a big game and I don't like the broadcasting crew because I don't think we put as much of a premium on that despite the fact that these guys are getting paid a ton of money and, and jumping networks and stuff. But long gone are the days that we had great broadcasters and announcers everywhere in sport because it was important and imperative to be able to communicate the sport. And I wanted to ask you, what are some of your favorites, if you have any? I know that I have a lot, and maybe that's obvious because of the medium that we work in, but we miss those people a lot. And I think even though Billy Packer was a curmudgeon, he did his job, right? He educated you as a color guy, and you learned a lot from watching him, even if maybe towards the tail end, he wasn't nearly as great as he he could have been. No, oh, sure. You have to recognize his ability as a broadcaster, despite maybe some of his personality uh, shortcomings, as I'll call them. But it's what made him who he was. And I do think that your character, whether it's likable or not, is important in something like that, just like maybe it's important in, in what we do or in radio. And from the broadcasting side of things, I, I do enjoy Jim Nance, as you mentioned. And I think it's even better if you compare a Jim Nance with a, a Tony Romo type color guy. And other broadcasters, it comes to mind, Al Mike, right? Probably on the most famous call of all time, if you think about it as a, as a U.S. sports fan. And, um, you know, we got to look back and give some props to the OG Howard Cosell back in the day. And, you know, a guy that gets a lot of heat and he, he manages it really well. But I think you got to give credit where credit's due. And that's Joe Buck. You know, I, I don't really care for his personality, but he's talented and you can't deny that. I think the ironic part about Joe Buck is that most people think one way about him because of the way he seems to be perceived in his broadcast. But I've seen a lot of interviews with him where he's been very off the cuff and much different guy off air than he is on air. But I agree with you. I mean, he came from a pedigree. His dad, Jack Buck, longtime Cardinals broadcaster and longtime baseball broadcaster. But even other guys like Brent Musburger, guy that I miss in college football a lot. I mean, you knew you were at the biggest game of the week when you heard, you are looking live. That was a great, great line. Missed that even before his time. Keith Jackson. Whoa, Nelly called one of the best. His last call was the best college football game of all time. USC, Texas, that national title game. And what I find is that a lot of these guys know when to get out of the way. Vern Lundquist, speaking of college basketball, another great, great broadcaster, also calls golf too and college football. He used to call the SEC until he retired. I miss that. We're not we're not getting those types of guys anymore. And when you think about the guys that stepped up for Joe Buck and Trakeman on Fox, I mean, Greg Olson is talented and I think paired with the right guy would be great, but the combo is just not there yet. But yet it doesn't matter. We're not watching the game for that anymore because the, this world and the sports have moved way past it now. And so I wanted to bring that up because we don't talk too much about that kind of thing, but being in radio as we are, it means something to me because that's what got me into this in the first place. Absolutely. And and one thing that is happening now that shows that people don't care as much about it as maybe they used to is the Manning cast, right? You're not seeing dynamic broadcasting happening on the Manning cast. You know, people are tuning in because they want to they want to hear interesting opinions, maybe a football perspective, and those guys just have unique personalities uh, that draw people in. And I think it's a great idea what ESPN is doing for a non-traditional broadcast while you can still get the traditional form broadcast on the main channel. And I can tell you what, there's still talent out there. And what has made that very obvious to me is the fact that I do watch a lot of mid-major basketball. And now 
basically every game is broadcasted on ESPN Plus or wherever else. And some of these guys, they have broadcasting, like these Bradley games, for example, on ESPN Plus. I mean, and bless them, I've never done it. I'm sure it's very difficult to do, but it just makes you appreciate how good the greats really are because these guys struggle uh, a lot. And um, like I said, I'm not casting stones because I'm sure it's not easy to do at all. But to see that compared to what you hear on a Saturday afternoon watching big time college football or Sunday watching you know the NFL, there is a huge disparity. And then also to add on the radio side, again, not to keep banging the Bradley drum, but they have a radio uh, broadcaster who's been on the air for them now for probably over 30 years. Um, and he is, I mean, he's a, an institution at Bradley. But it is funny, though, because over the years now, especially here in the last few years, he's starting to struggle a little bit. You can He's definitely not as sharp as he used to be. And, you know, it's going to be sad to kind of see him go that way because I think he'll hold on as long as he can and, and he'll be missed when he goes. But it, it's time. <laughs> I was really disappointed, man. I thought you were going to come out and straight up call Billy Packer a fraud and just crap on his legacy, crap on his grave, screw his kids, screw their grief. That's what the coach is all about because Billy Packer does not represent that AFC North grit, man. You could argue, though, that he is the way he is because he's gritty, right? And, you know, I'm not here to discredit what the guy did. I do, I think that he's, you know, curmudgeon, as you said, was perfect. And I think that that's an appropriate word and not sad that he's not calling any more basketball games, obviously, but... At the same time, he, he did it for a really long time, and you can't do that if you're not talented. I'm proud of you, man. You're showing growth on air to the listeners. You are making waves in this world. And speaking of frauds, let's talk about NFL referees because that is the talk of the town today. Obviously, championship week was this past week. We saw the Chiefs and Bengals. We saw the Eagles and some semblance of the 49ers. We'll get to that. But the last taste in our mouth at the end of this weekend was a call at the end of the Chiefs-Bengals game. And really, when you think about it, it was a myriad of calls. And I need to cop to something. I got emotional about a team that isn't my team. I wanted the Bengals to win so badly that somehow during that broadcast, the Chiefs became an absolute heel in this household because I wanted the Bengals to win so badly. And there was a call at the end of the game that was unnecessary roughness, a play, Mahomes is running out of bounds, the defender goes out there. It's really a bang-bang play. I watched it a lot, and I had to take that bias away. But I think when you look at the game in totality, and maybe even the season in totality, there were a lot of questions that could be had and maybe even criticisms on NFL referees. And do you think that that's fair? Because I know you're somebody who has said this season that generally these referees do a good job. I think if you looked at the analytics of officials and what they do, it, it, it's probably pretty good as far as the calls they get right and wrong. Uh, I'm making some assumptions there, but as someone, and I don't know if I've ever disclosed this, I, I spent last winter, the last two last two years, officiating wrestling. I got certified to officiate wrestling and spent a little time as an official, and it, it definitely gave me a different appreciation for it because I was a little critical of officials as a coach. Now, obviously, it's much different when you are being critical of someone who's barely, you know, making thirty bucks to go out there. They're essentially volunteering their time to ensure that these kids have the ability to compete. And even at the high school level, it's not a far reach from that. It's definitely a labor of love. Once you get to the NFL level, I'm sure they love the game, but they're also being paid fairly well too, I'm certain. And when you're put under the microscope, everything you do is gonna get picked apart. I think that you have to accept the fact that more often than not, every call you make, you're gonna piss off 50% of the people. Do 
referees change the outcome of games? For the longest time, I feel like the answer to that question has been absolutely not play well enough to not leave not leave the uh, the result in the officials' hands. And I think maybe that's something that losers say to make us feel better or uh, you know to try to keep from making excuses and be maybe self-reflective a little bit but i think that referees can really take the wind out of a team's sail sail it's not so much what the call impacts on the field directly at times it's the shift that happens in the momentum the psychological uh, shift that takes place when those calls happen and you have you get emotions running and when people are emotional they don't always behave rationally they're not always thinking clearly, and that could lead to mistakes on the next play, two, three plays later. It might force a player, a quarterback maybe, to try to force a pass into a bad spot to try to make up for what they thought happened. There's so many dynamics of it that don't get thought about very often. And while it's, I, I find it hard to be critical of someone who's probably out there legitimately trying to do their best, I do think that there are a lot of improvements that could be made. Now, what those are specifically, I'm not sure, but I have a feeling you might have a few ideas. I don't necessarily have a solution or any ideas, but I, I, I will articulate the way that I felt about this weekend in this way, is that I never want to leave a game of such importance feeling like the referees are the main story, because at the end of the day, that takes away from the play on the field. And you said it, I'm somebody who has been very adamant about the fact that a blown call here or a blown call there, those things generally tend to net out and be net, a net zero at the end of the day because you're the beneficiary of some, they're the beneficiary of some. But sometimes the time in which a penalty is called or not called makes you feel like the outcome of the game was very much influenced by this. And this call at the end of the game made me feel that way. But when I take away the bias of wanting the Bengals to win that football game, by the letter of the law, it was a correct call. What you hate to see is that it's with three seconds left and it gives the Chiefs 100% of field goal opportunity to now go to the Super Bowl. And you hate to see that. But then when I think about it, well, maybe don't give up a 30-yard punt return. Maybe don't put that team in that scenario. But it wasn't just that call. It was the do-over. I mean, that that I've never seen before. And you told me that you've had this happen to you, and it blows my mind. I can understand it, no offense, at a high school level happening because, as you said, some of these referees, they're doing it for a passion of the game. They're getting paid very little. It's a side hustle. This is the professional league, boys. Like, we can't be doing that. And it was a terrible, terrible, terrible look. And it certainly leaves me feeling like there was something going on in this game where the referees were not on the up and up. And you you want to see that week one. You don't want to see that in the AFC Championship game. No, 100%. And on top of that call, the, the call at the end that had everybody fired up, as you said, by the letter of the law, that was a penalty. There were some other ones along the way that really raised my eyebrows. The intentional grounding that got called on Joe Burrow on maybe their, I don't know if it was their last drive or second to last drive. And then the next series for Kansas City, you basically had the same exact play where Patrick Mahomes and the ball did not cross the line of scrimmage. The There was a running back that was in the ballpark, but he was just as, I mean, literally, it had to be within feet of the same distance from where the ball landed as the Cincinnati running back was. It was almost an identical play, and the fact that they called intentional grounding on one and not on the other seemed bizarre. Now, I've heard people say that the Mahomes ball was tipped, which does change the rule. 
in that case. I haven't gone back and rewatched it. And and I'll be honest, I don't know the, the full nuance of the intentional grounding rule, but I'm saying visually as a fan, when you watch those two plays side by side, they look identical with two different calls. Uh, there was a late hit on Burrow that didn't get called. There was definitely on that big punt return, there were you know, two of the uh, Chiefs protectors on the outside against the Bengals gunner basically tackled the guy uh, trying to get downfield and make a play. And yes, this kind of crap happens. And I'm sure it, it happened throughout the game going in the other direction. I completely understand that. But the redo was bizarre. And when they showed the replay, you could sort of see the official come in and try to stop it. But then he backed off because he's like, he didn't want to get hurt. But I think you've got it. You can't let that play take place. Like, what if Patrick, like, what if you come in and Patrick Mahomes stops playing because he sees you out of the corner of his eye, but you don't commit to stopping the play and someone comes in and blows out his knee or whatever. I mean, there could have been so many crazy things that could have taken place on that play, uh, you know, where that guy, he should have committed to stopping the play. The referee has got to get in there. It's your job. That's what you're paid to do. And I don't like to be critical of something that I don't do. But in that particular instance, don't half-ass it. Don't be a halfsy on that. Get in there. Call the play dead because what sucked about that was the Bengals made a stop and that was a momentum shifter. And if it was in reverse, I'd have felt the same way. And honestly, Zach Taylor, Bengals coach, I think I got that name right. You'll have to fact check me on that. He was livid. And I understood his frustration because that just cannot happen at a professional level. It just can't. I'm sorry. And and that referee, thankfully, is not going to be anywhere near the Super Bowl because if he's afraid to do that in an AFC championship game, I do not want that man anywhere near the Super Bowl, but you talked about solutions. I think what makes football so difficult is obviously the calls and the penalties and things you're not supposed to do are fairly objective. When you look at them by definition and you think, what is holding? Well, here is what holding is. But I think the legislation of it is very subjective and comes down to how a particular referee interprets it. And I think what stinks about that is there's no way to really get around that. But I think there are things within the officials sort of placemat of things that they have to do that could be made easier. Like it blows my mind and boggles my mind that we're still physically measuring first downs with a chain gang. Like we have technology to go to the fucking moon, but we can't somehow put a chip in the football to know when they've gotten a first down. And think about all the challenges that get saved by this or the referee doesn't have to do this now, can focus on something else. I mean, think about how much real lifetime we've wasted watching them look at replay because a challenge on something that they were never going to get reversed. Like, why are we doing that? Yeah, I would think you'd be able to put some technology in the ball somehow that would help with these spot checks or did they break the plane and score? Maybe even uh, catches somehow. I mean, I imagine that th there's got to be technology out there that can help these guys out beyond what's at their disposal right now. I know that They've ramped up replay. They ramped it up a couple of years ago to even review uh, passing interference. They kind of pulled back on that, which that's okay, I guess, because sometimes if passing interference, the way I interpret it, for the most part, should be obvious in real time if that guy was interfered with to the extent that's going to prevent him from catching the football. Now, if you're going to say so, you're, one of your assistant coaches watched the replay in the booth and told you on the headset, hey, man, he kind of grabbed his jersey in the front on that one. You should challenge it and they challenge it and see that he got a handful of jersey, but did that really impact his ability to catch the ball or not? Because I'm guaranteeing you that shit's happening on every single play. Every single play. There's holding on every play. It's just the way football is. My biggest gripe when it comes to that stuff is I feel like the game is officiated differently in the first five minutes than it is from the last five minutes. And basketball is the freaking worst at this, yes. in my opinion. But, like, think about Hail Marys. 
there's passing interference. Like these guys are getting freaking assaulted in the end zone. But at the same time, like who's got the stones to throw that flag and give the team, you know, first first and goal from the one yard line in that situation. Well, who's to say that in the final two minutes of a game, we can't make it the way that we make other things, right? Let's review a call or make it like targeting in college football. Hey, we're going to call unnecessary roughness, but then New York is going to look at it. Was it truly intentional on the defender, right? And Mahomes, for his part, did a great flop. I'm not going to lie. Like, that was a great flop. My brother-in-law texted me that, and I when I rewatched it, I thought, he definitely sold it, which he should do, by the way. I'm not hating on Mahomes on this, but maybe that's how we do it. Maybe somehow we make it so that there can be a review. And I understand that these games already take enough time, but there's a lot at stake here. And for some of these players, it could be the difference between getting a contract or not getting a contract. I mean, this could change the trajectory of careers here. It never changes the trajectory of a referee, ever. These guys are always back, and it just, I didn't like it. But the referees are always going to be heels, no matter what they do. So they're kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't, it's thankless. But there is a narrative coming out of this and kind of that I alluded to earlier about Patrick Mahomes and maybe even the Chiefs as, as a whole. Is it possible that Mahomes and the Chiefs are now villains? Yes, I think it's happening. And and part of the reason I think it seems to really be taking off is they're kind of embracing that role a little bit. If you watched right after the game and Travis Kelsey, you know, getting kind of right in the camera and running his mouth, uh, quoting, you know, some professional wrestlers and the rock and all that stuff. And he's just having fun. But I guarantee you at the same time, it's like, hey, in your face and yeah, that's going to create some animosity. Sure, I, I don't I don't blame them for doing that. I would probably do the same thing. But we've seen this happen time and time again, like with the ascension of the Patriots when Brady came in and, you know, the, the Red Sox are, are a good one. Now you're having the Chiefs. I think that, you know, you sort of peak at that first championship and then it's all downhill from there. Like if you go to a second one, you go from being the darling to the enemy that quickly. I think that people want to see someone that hasn't been there get there, they, but they don't want to see you stay there for very long. They want you to get out of the way and let the next guy come along. So everyone's tired of Patrick Mahomes, which sucks for you because the guy is going to be around for a while and win a lot of football games. But now everybody's ready to see Joe Burrow and Josh Allen get to the top of that mountain. But the second they get there, it's going to be the same thing for sure. We love an underdog until they're not an underdog anymore. And I remember when the Chiefs won, everybody was so happy because of Andy Reid. And I'll be honest, if the Chiefs win the Super Bowl, I'll still be happy for Andy Reid. I don't find him to be a villain in any way. I don't even really find Mahomes to be that way. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's the way that they acted at the end. But when you give a team bulletin board material, they're going to respond. They're going to react to it. And so at the end of the day, that's not it. But I do wonder, like, what is the line? How many championships does it take or how many good how many good seasons in a row does it take for them to go from America's most loved to America's most wanted? Because it seems to have already happened. Yeah, I think it might be, you know, one championship. And if, if you threaten even another one after that, especially the next year, you're sort of on the list at that point in time. And then, of course, kind of personalities and how you present yourself could help that for sure. But what's interesting is there there's a couple teams that come to mind that seem like they sort of avoided that. Now, they didn't have, like, sustained success at the championship level for several years, but they definitely won Super Bowls and were close. 
And that's one is the Saints. The Saints were pretty good for a long time, and they never seem to really become the villains. And I don't know if their ascension came on, if it's because their ascension came on the heels of Katrina and everything, that they were sort of America's darling and they stayed that way. And Drew Brees kind of always had that underdog because he's a little guy and he seemed to be very likable. And another one is the Steelers. For as good as the Steelers have been for as long as they have, they don't seem to get the hate that like the Cowboys get or the Patriots get or that the Chiefs are getting right now, which I find really interesting. It's probably the AFC North grit that you love so much. That's why they love them. I mean, Steelers fans, though, are very similar to, I think, Notre Dame fans or any type of a fan base that seems to be all over the country. They're everywhere. They're kind of obnoxious at times. So I think maybe they're not as immune. I think they are just more globally disliked and not necessarily because of all the winning. I think it's a lot of other factors that go into it. The Saints only won the one championship, so they never had to deal with winning another one after that. And maybe that's part of the allure. We don't like to see teams win more than once, and the Chiefs now are going to go for their second. And maybe this is a good thing for us and Joe Burrow because he's saved from becoming a villain so far. So maybe there is a silver lining to all this stuff. But let's flip over to the NFC. Eagles and 49ers coming in seemed like a game that we were going to really, really enjoy. And I'll be honest, it did not live up to expectations, but it wasn't because one team didn't show up. It was because the 49ers have had unprecedented injuries at the quarterback position. I'm not sure if you heard today, but Brock Purdy had torn his UCL in his elbow. He's probably going to be out six months. He might actually need surgery. And they, they, they never were going to be in that game. They ended up having to put Josh Johnson in, who's on gosh, is like 28th team at this point. I think he's been on every team in the league. And he gets a concussion. And Brock Purdy has to come back in and can't throw the ball. So basically, they hand the ball off after that. The Eagles are a very talented football team. They're going to the Super Bowl. No doubt they deserve to be there. But that's another one of those situations where you don't want to see that game go that way because you don't feel like it was a true contest. And if the Eagles win the Super Bowl, it won't matter. But man, what a terrible way for the 49ers season to end. And for the Eagles, they may not be tested until they play the Chiefs. I think you're right. And when you text me, because I wasn't watching the game, I was, uh, I can't remember what the heck I was doing Saturday afternoon, but I was busy during the early game. And you text me and said that Brock Purdy went down and I asked you who was in for him. But my initial thought wasn't, oh shit. My initial thought was, well, if they're here with their third string guy, like, you know, it's kind of that mentality of it's the, the coach and the system or what's got them here probably at this point in time. Just plug the next guy in and let's keep rolling. And it's weird how different that thinking is compared to if it had been a starter that went down mid-game going to the backup. My reaction would have been like, oh, they're screwed. Where in this case, because it was already the third string guy, I was like, well, I, I wouldn't discount them at this point. The fact that the third string guy got him here. But who I really feel bad for is Brock Purdy because he might have just lost out on his payday. You know what I'm saying? And that's what really sucks for him and... On the other hand, here we go looking across the field at the Eagles. Jalen Hurts, you know, young guy having great success. I think he's battled some injury this year himself. And, you know, to have his team in the position that they're in heading into the Super Bowl, I can't wait to see what happens. I mean, they're definitely the more talented team, I think, as far as from a health perspective. I know the Chiefs are a little banged up, but the Eagles and Jalen Hurts, one thing I wondered is, I guess we would consider him a national championship winner, right? From the year, I know that Tua came in a little bit in that game, but I did some research because I was trying to plan for it for Joe Burrow. When was the last quarterback that's won both a national championship and a Super Bowl? And it was Joe Montana, which was really interesting. But didn't Jalen Hurts win a national championship as the starter and then got pulled? So that Tua's 
the two in national yes. championship, he was pulled mid mid game, but he did win one as the starter. I think his story is not getting enough love in the news. And I saw Rich Eisen had a great thread on Twitter about everything that Jalen Hurts has gone through from being pulled in that national title game, getting drafted. He, he goes to Oklahoma, almost wins the Heisman, loses out to Joe Burrow, by the way, that year. Ends up going to Philadelphia. They still want to play Carson Wentz, so he gets benched again. And then finally gets his moment to shine last year. Takes the team to the playoffs. Tom Brady eliminates him. Be added to the list of people that Tom Brady has eliminated from the playoffs. And this year, he ascends and is possibly the MVP of the league. May even end up being the MVP of the Super Bowl. It's a fantastic story. And I don't think that I really took enough time to think about what he's been through and by extension didn't give him enough credit this year because I've been somebody who has sort of sarcastically but also somewhat realistically said, I don't know if the Eagles are any good or if they're as good as advertised. I think Jalen Hurts is as good as advertised because the journey that it took for him to get here was different than so many other guys that end up just getting drafted and getting there. 100%. He's had to overcome a ton of adversity to get to this point and really has faced a lot of doubters. And, you know, the fact that he was sort of forced out of Alabama, I, maybe that's an aggressive way to put it, but they benched him for a different quarterback and he had to go sort of recreate his identity somewhere else, which he did a great job of doing. As you already mentioned, goes to the Eagles, gets sat behind Carson Wentz, and here he is with his team in the Super Bowl. Extremely talented. And the fact that he did overcome all that adversity I believe gives him sort of that staying power, um, that mental toughness that you're looking for out of that position. And then when you have the talent to back it up, that's even better. Do you think Jalen Hurts is going to be in that pantheon of quarterbacks or is he already there? I mean, is he the kind of guy, we always ask this, and maybe again, we're not assessing properly, but the narrative around the black quarterback is that they can't do it long-term, right? We've, we've heard that with a lot of guys and we still hear that with Lamar Jackson and we haven't seen Lamar Jackson get past a certain point and here comes Jalen Hurts, who could win a Super Bowl, and that does elevate you. And should we be talking about Jalen Hurts in the, if you were to build a franchise today, that scenario? Is he a guy that we should be more heavily considered? Because I think we automatically go toward guys like Burrow and Herbert. But I wonder if you're doing what the Eagles are doing and being very smart and aggressive in the front office, if Jalen Hurts can't be your guy for a really long time. Because I'll tell you what, he doesn't make a lot of mistakes plays very, very smart, and he's very, very talented. I think that he definitely has to be considered in that conversation, but my perspective on that is I want to see how you handle it once the bullseye is on your back. And and I get that, you know, they've been successful all year, but you could argue that they kind of came in a little under the radar. I mean, people knew they were talented, but no one knew if they were going to be able to turn that talent into wins. And the fact that they've done that, now they're in the Super Bowl, especially if they win the Super Bowl, he's got the target on his back now for sure. And how does he handle that and perform next year is sort of is sort of what I'm looking for before I solidify him in that pantheon of quarterbacks that you're talking about. And while talking, too, about the traditional style of the black quarterback with the black quarterbacks, let's not forget the guy that's on the other side. Yeah, I mean, Patrick Mahomes, this is the first Super Bowl in history with two black quarterbacks. And obviously, he has a skill set that is very much traditional, but also sort of a hybrid. I mean, he's kind of Aaron Rodgers, but way better at the scrambling and, and making plays. Now, he did some things in this game that I thought were a little bit, wow, I don't really want to see that from my guy, but it worked out and it always seems to work out for him. But I get what you're saying. And I think that that's a fair thing to say because I will usually say that about teams like the Jaguars. We both think the Jaguars are set up for the future, but they're going to play a first place schedule next year. 
And that's when you really see the growth. That's when you really see how do they respond. And the Eagles are going to be in the same place. And those windows for those teams aren't as long as people think. I mean, Joe Burrow can say it's his whole career, but once he gets paid and Jamar Chase gets paid, then you got to disperse the money somewhere. So Jalen Hurts is going to get a massive payday, no doubt. And are they going to be able to keep guys like A.J. Brown or be able to go out and be aggressive to get a guy like that? I'm not sure. And it's not easy to sustain a dynasty. I mean, even the Patriots went 10 years between Super Bowls. And yes, they were good in that time period. But winning a Super Bowl is difficult. Winning two is even more difficult. And I think that's part of the narrative for Mahomes as well. He's won one, yes, but he's also come up short in a lot of moments that other quarterbacks like Tom Brady haven't done. And we've been heaping criticism on guys like Aaron Rodgers for only winning one. Mahomes has got to get to two. So I think you're right. I think we will see what Jalen Hurts has made of. But I think if there's anybody in this league that can get through that adversity, it's definitely him. And he seems to be in a great place with Nick Sirianni, his coach, who all of a sudden, is he like the embodiment of Philadelphia? He seems to be like Mr. Philly all of a sudden. It is really neat to watch. And I think that's the perfect type of guy to have uh, leading that franchise. Because if you can get somebody that the city of Philadelphia and their crazy fans can sort of uh, rally around, uh, they, they're going to be obnoxious. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, the excitement, I can only imagine what the excitement's like in that city right now, and especially among all those degenerates, as I like to say. And a funny story about Mahomes real quick. I was uh, doing my research, uh, my very credible research on TikTok earlier and came across a Joel Klatt video where he talked about, a, say, 10 years ago or so, not 10 years ago, whenever the hell Mahomes was drafted. Okay, so they're getting ready to do the draft and he is... Uh, staying at the same hotel that John Gruden's staying at. He goes down for breakfast, and he doesn't even think that John Gruden knows who he is at this point in time. And he sees Gruden sitting in the corner, and he's like, Clack, come sit down. Let's have a meal together, you know? And he's like asking him what he thinks of these different quarterbacks that are in the draft. He's like, what do you think of Mahomes? And he's like, well, you know, honestly, I don't know if that, you know, West Coast offense in college, it hasn't necessarily panned out super well. We'll see. You know, he's got some tools, but there's some concerns. And he goes, Andy's going to take him with the 10th pick. He's like, what? He's like, yep. He's like, he's like, why? He goes, I've, all the people I've talked to, any of us who have ever had our hands on Brett Favre, we see Brett Favre and Patrick Mahomes. And I tell you what, man, I see it too now. And I've kind of said, I've never heard that story before today, but I, I've mentioned that before that he, maybe even on this show earlier this season, that he has that sort of gunslinger mentality. I mean, he's throwing no look passes and everything else, throwing it with his left hand, which reminds you of Brett Favre. Yes, but I will say this, and if I caution you about Mahomes in the future, that kind of game doesn't age very well. But this game in particular against the Bengals was sort of a precursor to that because he was not 100% limping off the field a ton and still threw for 300 and didn't turn the ball over, which is a testament to just how fucking talented he is. And there's no denying it. And honestly, as a guy... I don't find him to be that objectionable. Like I said, the team seems to be villains, but I don't find Mahomes to be that way. He almost looked kind of uncomfortable when, when Kelsey was doing his thing and talking all of his trash. Burrow had my ass, which I thought was actually a great line, by the way. It was, just, it was great. I think he's probably a little scarred from the embarrassment that his brother oh and his wife had kind of brought them last year and all that stuff. If you notice, you didn't see any of those people. Nope. Either one of them this year at all. He must have told them, you know, and I heard someone make the comment, so I can't own this. Hey, if you want the credit cards to keep swiping, shut up. Man, that is brutal. That is absolutely brutal, but possibly true. But I would not doubt it because they were a major distraction and you could tell. 
And you don't need that. Guys like that are 100% dedicated to their craft. And I have to admit, if you were giving out some gritty award this week, it would have to go to a guy like Mahomes. I mean, playing on that ankle, doing what he did was absolutely phenomenal. But we have one game left in the NFL season. I can't believe it. And we've we've taken all of this time to get here, and now we're left with two. But you're a betting man, or you know, a fairly degenerate uh, betting man at some at some point. But the early line is Eagles plus two. Now, generally speaking, that means that it's essentially a push. If you played at a neutral site, I think the home team generally gets what like three points. So seems like it's a pretty close matchup to me. Do you think that line is going to go up for the Eagles or do you think it's going to come back toward the middle? I think if anything, it's going to come back towards the middle. It wouldn't surprise me if this thing's a pick em come kickoff time just because there are a lot of Chiefs fans out there and, and just fans in general are going to come in heavy on the Chiefs, which I think is going to move the line. That's That's what my guess is. And if you were to bet with this line right now, who would you take not thinking about what's going to happen between now and then? Because two weeks is a long time. There's going to be a lot of money flying all over the place for this game. Uh, two is a tough line to pick, but honestly, at this point in time, with that line of plus two, I'm still taking the Eagles. This doesn't feel like a line that you would take. Now, there are some, like, what was the one I had? Bengals minus six the other week, and I was like, this feels like a line that you would yeah. you'd find yourself better. But I guess on. it's technically, I guess it's technically... I guess it'd be Eagles minus two as the favorite. Yeah. So a field goal would get the job done. And I think that I feel comfortable with that right now. I mean, that's something I would feel comfortable putting money on. If you had to venture a guess, who do you think America will be rooting for? Because the Super Bowl is that event that no matter whether you like football or not, billions of people tune in all across the world. And even people that don't care have a team that they root for for one reason or another. So who do you think will be the team that America roots for? I think it's going to be really tough to pick. One thing, you might get casual fans on the Chiefs just because some of the name recognition. The Eagles aren't quite there yet. You know, Jalen Hurts is still sort of carving his identity out in the NFL, but this could do it for him. And then I do think you're going to get some of that anti-Chiefs movement supporting the Eagles. So it really wouldn't surprise me if this thing's pretty down the middle, as boring of a take as that is. You know, this is one of those where there isn't a team that's super polarizing. And for many, many years, we had the Patriots in a lot of Super Bowls. And at least at that point, you could say, oh, God, not another Patriots Super Bowl and immediately root for the other team that was on the other side. Or as we've talked about, if the Cowboys made the Super Bowl, which seems like it's never going to happen in my lifetime again, but that would be amazing because America would be all over the other team. You'd have obviously a lot of Cowboys fans, but this doesn't really have that kind of a market. I mean, I don't know how hated Philly is nationwide. I know that there's a narrative that they are because they boo Santa Claus and they cheer Michael Irvin's neck injury, but do you think people in the West actually give a shit about Philly? No, not in the way that maybe some of their division rivals would um, in that sense. I don't think you're going to have that much of a strong resentment towards the Eagles in general. And I do think you're probably going to have more resentment in the West towards the Chiefs outside of Chiefs fans. So it'll be really interesting, honestly. I, I am kind of curious to see how it all shakes out. How do you feel about the two-week break between the championship game and the Super Bowl? Because it never used to be that way. I think that started around 9-11 when they had to take a break or something like that. I personally hate it because the first week is just we're regurgitating the same analysis over and over and over again. And it doesn't really get interesting until media day when you actually start seeing and hearing from the players and seeing all the great stories, listening to Radio Row, which everybody should know is a dream of ours to one day broadcast from Radio Row. 
but I don't like the two weeks. I guess I understand why it's there to make money and get ads and, and all these things, but it just feels unnecessary to me. Yeah, I imagine it, it's kind of turned into, if anything, a money grab at this point in time. It allows for probably twice as many advertisers to get involved in the lead up to the game, uh, just the build up in general of the hype around the game. I think that the players, maybe they don't like it because it does drag it out a little bit, but you got to think if you've got to get a little healthy, man, having that extra week has got to be huge. That's going to be huge for Mahomes, I imagine. And I think within the league, you're pro you probably wouldn't hear a lot of criticism of the two-week break. I think they probably enjoy it. And from the NFL, you know, from the Shield perspective, I think that there's probably a lot of money to be made stretching this thing out over a couple of weeks. Now, as a fan, it sucks because we've been used to football every week for five months, and now we're going to have a football this weekend, which kind of blows. Why? What are you talking about? Don't we have the Pro Bowl coming up? I mean, aren't you, you know, salivating over the Pro Bowl? Well, I can. Uh, let's see what I call this. Um, spoiler alert. My pick of the week is not the Pro Bowl. Damn. I was really hoping that you were one of those Pro Bowl guys. I'd imagine a lot of the degenerate gamblers that we talk about are betting the Pro Bowl. There's probably prop bets all over the Pro Bowl, but that doesn't interest me in the least. I don't know. I mean, I guess you're right. There's probably a lot of positives to having it. It does extend the football season one more week and fine. I'll just not turn on ESPN for an entire week, but I would rather not have that whole two weeks. But if it gets the teams healthy and we have a near 100% Mahomes against 100% Jalen Hurts, America technically wins in that. And maybe we have one of the greatest games we've ever seen. And you know what? I think that that's a great thing to strive for. But I wanted to ask you, are you a Super Bowl party kind of a guy? Or do you like to watch the game in the comfort of your own home? And on the back end of that, is going to a Super Bowl on your sports bucket list? I, I'm i not crazy about Super Bowl parties. I don't mind them. I don't mind gatherings at all. I enjoy getting together with friends, having a couple of drinks, talking football or whatever else might be on the agenda. I'm not crazy about Sunday gatherings in general. I have a hard time really enjoying myself at any Sunday gathering because you just have the work week sort of looming. And I know that, you know, I'm going to have to kind of shift my mindset before bedtime, getting ready for the week ahead. And so I'm not a big fan of Sunday gatherings in total. I wish they'd move the Super Bowl to Saturday, truthfully, or turn Monday into a holiday. As far as watching the game, any game I'm actually interested in the outcome, most often I would prefer to watch it by myself or just with a select couple of people where we might be talking about the game as it's happening. I, I have no interest being at a big party listening to mostly uneducated idiots blabbering on about what they think should be happening um, on the field. Isn't that a missed opportunity for us? I feel like we need to go to a Super Bowl party and just get everybody's takes on the game and put them together in like a, a montage of stupidity, as I like to call it. But we are going to add to that when we have our little Super Bowl thing on February 12th. And I realized that people have asked us, like, what are you going to talk about? Everybody talks about the same game. And we kind of want to zig where everybody else is zagging. We're not really looking to break down the game. I'm sure that you will have a pick of the week for the Super Bowl that day. But we're going to talk about a lot of different things. And we're going to leave the analysis to all these other people, these gas bags out there, the Dan Orlovskis of the world, the Rex, Rex Ryans of the world. 
let them talk about it and they'll make their predictions and they'll go back and forth, back and forth, and it will be what it will be. But I too like to watch from the comfort of my own home. Sometimes Super Bowl parties you get, and I hate to say this because it sounds so pretentious, but you get those people who don't watch football, who then don't know the terminology and they get excited over something that isn't actually meaningful or something that is very, very routine. And they're like, oh, we're footballing or go sportsing. And you're like, just, I can't, I can't with this. Like I. I need educated sports fans around me. And so I too enjoy being at home, especially if my team is in it, which 100%, if my team is in it and you come over, just know that you are going to get serious. Like I, I can't be, you know, catering to you or bringing you food or whatever. Take care of yourself. Have a great time. Make your home here. But this is the game, man. I need this. Yeah. And I about fell out of my chair at work today. I'll be honest with you. I had a coworker. Someone brought up the Super Bowl, said, oh, who are you rooting for in the Super Bowl? What do you do? You do anything fun for the Super Bowl? Kind of like what we just talked about. And one coworker goes, I don't really even know who's in the Super Bowl. He goes, I just watch it for the halftime show. And I literally about lost my mind because I, I get that everyone's a football fan. I would have much rather him said, I don't watch the game at all. Okay. Or even say, I watch it for the commercials. That's lame, but it's not as lame as saying that you literally tune in for the crappy halftime show i mean there are there have been some good ones there have been some bad ones but as far as live performances go of music the halftime shows are usually pretty terrible from a production standpoint i mean they do their best to jazz it up but like it's not good garbage and to say that that's the reason that you're tuning in well man what else do you what other crappy things do you like <laughs> the halftime show as somebody who appreciates good production and music offends me on so many levels to the point that some of the bands or groups that I have seen have actually become worse in my mind. Like that Rolling Stones performance from what feels like it was yesterday, but it's probably like 20 years ago. They sounded awful. And then you realize that they're still touring. Can you imagine how awful that they actually sound now? But I mean, there haven't been many that have been memorable. The last one for me that was very, very memorable was the one that the Patriots won their first one. U2, right after 9-11, pulls the jacket out. It's got all the names of the people, right? The American flag on it. Just that was iconic in that kind of a way because the country needed something like that. But as far as what we have today, I mean, last year's was fun because that brought me back to high school in a lot of ways. But the production of it is no good. I mean, I can get behind the music that's being played, but let's not pretend that this is like a real concert here. But I mean, also, too, you have to recognize Prince singing Purple Rain in the rain. Yes. That was pretty badass. Oh, it was. That's uh, That was another one, too. But I I guess I, when I think about ones that elicited a response from me, but as far as musically, Prince is one of the best ones we've ever seen because he's a highly underrated performer and guitar player. Nobody, I don't think, ever talks about him in the Pantheon of Guitar Players. That is a whole nother segment, a whole other day. Maybe that's what we're talking about in the offseason because I love talking about music, but we are getting close to the end, man. So that means one thing. As is tradition on this show, OTW of the week, every single week, no matter what's going on, except for, of course, for some of the weeks that I've been monologuing. But you know what? That's a technicality. Don't worry about that. Do not peek at the man behind the curtain. So, Coach, Iceman's stat of the week, Travis Kelsey. You're familiar, of course. Absolutely. So, Mr. Kelsey obviously is a great tight end. He's had a 
Hall of Fame career, I would say. I don't think that's really in dispute. And his playoff stats are very, very gaudy. Well, this past weekend, he found himself in second place all time on the most career receiving yards in playoff history. Do you know who he passed? I'm not even sure. I almost feel like the fact that this is your stat, it's probably a legend. It is Julian Edelman. So not a legend. So this list is Michael Irvin, Rob Gronkowski, Julian Edelman, Travis Kelsey, and I'm sure you can guess who number one is. Jerry Rice? Yes. And the reason I brought this stat up is to give you the chasm between Travis Kelsey, who is number two all time at 1,467 yards for his career in the playoffs. Jerry Rice has 2,245 yards in the playoffs. Travis Kelsey has to play basically an entire career in the playoffs to make that. That's absolutely incredible, man. And I tell you what, it seems like we forget a little bit about Jerry Rice's greatness and even some other players that played during that time. Jerry Rice was fantastic. The Wayne Gretzky of football. I don't think we appreciate that greatness. I know that Alexander Ovechkin is getting very, very close to his record in terms of goals scored, but his records were so far beyond everybody else. And Jerry Rice is that guy. And when you see that 800 yards between number one and number two for the playoffs, I think it's just an amazing stat. And to me, it tells me just how great Jerry Rice was. My friends, it is time for Coach's Pick of the Week. Last week, he picked the Bengals straight up over the Chiefs. That did not come true. And unfortunately, his record fell to a continually paltry 6-8-2. and two. However, there's always a way to redeem himself. So, Coach, please, please, please bless us with your Picketh of the Week. Hear ye, hear ye, Chiefs fans, unfortunately, and the lovely referees who assisted you in overcoming my Cincinnati Bengals. This week, we go to the hardwood in honor of my recently departed nemesis, Billy Packer. I am taking the St. Mary's Gales. They were they are ranked number 18 in the country. They are hosting Gonzaga, who is currently ranked number 12. I don't know what the spread is because they don't put them out four days in advance because this game is not until Saturday, I believe. But I will take St. Mary's at home over Gonzaga to get back on the winning trail. The Gales of St. Mary's over the Bulldogs of Gonzaga, the first ever college basketball pick for Coach's Pick of the Week. So let it be written. So let it be done. And we have reached the end, my friends, as we do every single week. Another great episode, lots to talk about. Nice that we spread our wings a little bit, talking about your hatred of Billy Packer, pissing on his grave, and then picking a college basketball pick. I love that man. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listening audience? Well, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you for tuning in. And all of you, make sure you get on to this NCAA basketball heater we're about to go on here at Iceman and Coach. Other than that, I hope everyone enjoys their week and try not to get too depressed without any football this weekend. The Super Bowl is right around the corner. It is. And speaking of which, February 12th, 12 p.m., 1 to 1 p.m., Iceman and Coach will be starting off the big game pre-show Bedlam, which will be three shows, three hours, one network. You will not want to miss it. We will not be doing anything else anybody is doing on Super Bowl Sunday so come on down, join us live on Sunday, February 12th for some fun. 
Check out the Pub Time podcast where you guys just recorded with another show, Tall Boy Radio, I believe. And I believe that you had a ton of fun there. Want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Ryan and I were lucky enough to hop on with Tall Boy Radio to be guests on uh, their podcast. Uh, they're a couple of gentlemen from the UK, England, to be exact. And this is the third time we've actually had the chance to record with them. They are super guys. So if you get a chance, check out Tall Boy Radio. They're on all your podcasting platforms. Just super, super duper human beings. Uh, like to sit back and have a couple beers and have great perspectives on different things. We talked about secret societies. And so if you've listened to Pub Time at all, you know, Ryan and I can go down a lot of rabbit holes on those things. And these guys had, a, had some interesting perspectives because there's a lot of secret societies that sort of got their roots um, in the UK. No doubt NFL referees are their own secret society, but please check out the Pub Time Podcast wherever you find your podcast. Check out MattyIceMedia.com for the other podcasts that we have as a part of the network. If you are listening on Apple and Spotify, please hit follow, please hit rate. Means the world. Hope this finds everybody safe, happy, and healthy. And as always, this is Iceman and Coach. The opinions and viewpoints expressed on the Iceman and Coach Sports Show are those of Matt Freights, Brad Powell, and their guests, and not necessarily those of the Matty Ice Media Network. The Iceman and Coach Sports Show is exclusively owned by Matt Freights and Brad Powell and is brought to you by the Matty Ice Media Network.